Amen. Blair, thank you, brother. Well, good morning, church. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's a blessing and honor to be with you this Lord's Day. Our scripture passage this morning is Psalm 131. Psalm 131, as we continue in our summer series, Songs for the Road, a study of the Psalms of Ascent. Out of reverence to God's holy inspired word, if you are able this morning, will you please stand as it is read? A Song of Ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child is with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. As we've had this summer, uh, I've had several guest pastors, friends of mine, connections come in and preach and fill the pulpit, uh, and sometimes you get into discussions about preaching styles, and, and I, one of my friends, uh, Daniel, who preached several weeks ago, said, uh, I found that you tend to open not with a story, but with more of a question, and so, yeah, I guess that's the case, you know, more of a get you thinking kind of thing than just tell a story to start off, and so my question for you this morning is, would you consider yourself to be content? Are you a content person? Now, if your answer to that question is yes, then what follows needs to be, well, what makes you content? Why are you content? Are you content because of something connected to a bank account, a retirement account? Are you, con are you content because of the position you've attained in your career, in your field? Are you content because of your family or your home or your car? If no, no, I'm not content. Well, what would it take for you to achieve contentment? More money, a promotion, better family, a bigger family, better health? Now, if you go back, if you said, yes, I am content, consider, is there anything in your life where if you were to lose that thing, you would no longer be content? Is there anything in your life that if it went away for whatever reason, job, money, bank account, home, car, family, relationships. If they went away, then you would no longer consider yourself to be content. And if you said, no, I'm not content, is, again, what is that level of accomplishment that you have to achieve? What would you have to acquire? What would you have to do? What promotion, what degree, what level would bring contentment? There was a 60 Minutes interview back in 2005 with Tom Brady. Tom Brady's a quarterback in the NFL. I think he's retired now. I don't even know. He retires and retires all the time. He's won a bunch of Super Bowls, though. Back in 2005, he had won three of them, I think. And he's doing this interview with 60 Minutes. And he has this quote. He said this during this interview. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people think, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I love playing football, and I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Somebody who's reached the pinnacle, reached the apex of his field. 
This is not unique. This sentiment is not unique to Tom Brady. It's common amongst professional athletes and people of, of all walks of life. How many individuals reach the apex of their world just to find themselves asking the same kind of question? The reality is that we live in a world that is anything but, as our psalm says this morning, calm and quiet. This seems to be a problem faced by God's people today. We know it. We feel it. It's all around us. But it was just as much an issue for God's people when David wrote this psalm a thousand years before Christ. David writes this psalm. He writes Psalm 131 as an experiential psalm. He's giving us his personal experience. David is in three verses telling his story of how he was moved from pride to humility, from arrogance to trust, from self-reliance to dependence upon the Lord. The psalm teaches us simple but profound truth that those who practice humility before the Lord will find contentment and rest. So there's three points. There's three verses, there's three points. Living in humility, living in contentment, and living in hope. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said this is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest psalms to learn. And if you would ever consider, like, my soul is not calm and quiet, then this psalm is for you. And maybe you're thinking, hey, it's a short psalm, it's only three verses, I bet the sermon's going to be short. <laughs> I apologize in advance. That's not the case. But verse 1 Let's start off with this idea of what does it mean to live in humility, living in humility. This psalm, the psalms of ascent, as I believe the entirety of the psalms, are very intentional in their order. And Psalm 131 flows out of Psalm 130. Psalm 130 is a song of forgiveness, and Psalm 131 is a psalm of humility. Psalm 130 is a song of recognizing our inability to save ourselves. And so humility ought be the natural flow from that. If we recognize the truths of Psalm 130, we recognize that we have nothing on which to stand in and of ourselves. We recognize that we are in the pit. We are in the depths. We can't save ourselves. We can't help ourselves. All we can do is cry out to God. That was last week. If you missed last week, go check out our podcast, check out our website. You can listen to that sermon too. But from that place, we ought have a genuine heart of humility. Recognizing our dependence, our inability to help ourselves, to save ourselves. But this idea of speaking about humility really can be tricky. Some people say you can't speak about humility because the moment you do, you're proud again. There's a great verse in Numbers, Numbers 12.3. Now remember, as you read Numbers 12.3, remember who wrote the book of Numbers? It was Moses. So Numbers 12.3 says, Now Moses was a very meek, or very humble, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. You get it, right? You get the problem there? You get the issue there? Moses was the most humble man in all the world. Moses. But... It's really not an issue if you really dive and dig into it because you see it depends about on who you're speaking to and your attitude about when you speak. Both Moses in Numbers and David in Psalm 131 
are not boasting about their humility. They're not saying, I am so humble, you should follow me in humility. Rather, they are both confessing humility to God. David in particular, Psalm 131, this whole psalm speaks of a gentle, sweet humility before the Lord. David is not boasting. Rather, he is actually humbling himself before God even as he writes this psalm. David begins his prayer, O Lord. He begins by addressing his God, his Lord, his Master. Humility begins with that focus. Humility begins by focusing on our Lord. And everything that follows takes place in the context of this cry, O Lord. And in speaking of humility, in verse 1, David talks about three things. David talks about the heart, David talks about the eyes, and David talks about the feet in addressing and talking and exploring humility. First off, talk about the idea of the heart. Ancient Israelites understood the heart perhaps differently than we do today. This is seen in in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, this this prayer that the, the, the Hebrew people would pray at the beginning of every day, actually the beginning and the end of every day. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. This was their daily prayer. Now when it's translated into Greek and quoted by Jesus, the word mind is added in because the idea of the Shema is you love the Lord with all of yourself. But in the ancient Hebrew reckoning of thinking, the way David would have thought about this is that the heart and the mind were the same thing. The heart pumped blood, yes, it was important physically, but the heart was where you thought. The heart was the center of pondering, of weighing right and wrong, of understanding, of where you felt sorrow and joy, where you made choices with the seat of your desires. When David is writing about the heart, he's regarding it as both the seat of emotion, thought, and desire. The core of our feeling and our thinking and our being. David's heart is not lifted up. I love that word there, lifted up. Lord, my heart is not lifted up. That word means it can be translated high, lofty, tall. It's the same word that was used to describe Saul, the king Saul in 1 Samuel, where we were told Saul was a head taller than any of the others in 1 Samuel 10.23. But when used about the heart, David is taking it to mean being proud or haughty, lifting your heart up as though you are better than. Lifted up heart is pride in relation to yourself. Y'all, pride is, one of the, is probably the main barrier between us and God. Pride is what caused the fall of Satan. Pride is what caused Adam and Eve in the garden to say, we know better than God what is good and what is right. God has told us one thing, but we know better. Pride is in many ways the, the, the source and the root of so much sin. We know how to live our lives. We know how to be masters of our own domain, captain of our own ship. It's Proverbs 18.12. says, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Notice the contrast there in Proverbs 18. Before you fall down, 
your heart is proud or lifted up. There's a common liturgy in in the church, particularly at communion, in which the officiant will say, lift up your hearts, and the people will respond, we lift them up to God. Is Is there a contradiction between that liturgy and what David is saying and what Proverbs is saying? No. The liturgy directs our attention upward. And so we turn away from earthly things and turn our attention wholly towards God. It's impossible to lift our hearts to the Lord if we have them lifted up within ourselves. This is the contrast that David is bringing. My heart is not lifted up within myself. It is lifted up towards God. The second thing about humility David gets into is eyes. There's a good lifting of our eyes. Again, there's a contrast here, good lifting and a bad lifting. We see the good lifting of our eyes in Psalms like Psalm 121, which Blair preached for us several weeks ago, which says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. There's also a wrong lifting of our eyes where we lift them up only to look down on other people. And that's what David means here in Psalm 131. Proverbs also speaks to this. Proverbs 30, verse 13. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. Haughty eyes are those which are disdainful of other people, looking down on other people. You can either look up to the Lord or down on other people, but you can't do both at the same time. If the proud heart has to do with the pride in relation to yourself, these haughty eyes have to do with pride in relation to others. There's a pride that is constantly putting others down, comparing yourself to others, constantly convincing yourself that you're better than others, viewing the world as this competition. It's me versus the world. If I win, then they have to lose. And if I lose, then this means if someone else wins, it's because I've lost. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity puts it this way. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, or better looking than others. If someone else were to become equally rich or equally clever, good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And these are the idea of where are our eyes? Are they looked up to God or are they looked at other people and comparing ourselves to others? So we have our heart and we have our eyes. Finally, David talks about humility in our feet. In the final part of verse 1, David talks about uh, uh, this metaphorical speaking of feet because the word occupy myself is actually the Hebrew word for walk. Now, of course, this word can be used for actual physical walking. But more, it can be used for the sense of how you walk, our walk with the Lord, or how do we walk through this world. A great verb, a great word as we are on the road singing these songs of ascent. How is our walk? Simple translation of of the third line of verse 1. David is basically saying, I quit trying to play God. If a proud heart has to do with pride in relation to ourself and proud eyes have to do in relation to our pride with others, the proud walk has to do especially in relation to our walk with God. 
And do we understand our place? Are we walking with God, recognizing God is God and I am not? Or do we keep trying to push God aside saying, I've got it. I know what to do. I've got this figured out. But see, at all three levels, David is walking through and he's showing through his experience, I've lived it, I've walked it out. At all three levels, David is committed to killing the pride in his life from the heart to the eyes to the walk. Pride is a great evil, and David renounces it at every level. Uh, Robert Murray McShane says this, Scottish pastor, It's always been my aim and it is my prayer to have no plan as regards to myself, well assured that I am am at the place where the Savior sees to meet me. It must ever be the best place for me. I have no plans as regard to myself. We often want to make our own plans. We often want to make our own way. But God says, follow me. This is, this is why Jesus' profound, simple statement that we spent a whole, uh, the whole spring on, this idea of Jesus says, follow me. Don't run ahead and tell me where you're going. Follow me. Me. David is saying throughout verse 1 that it, humility is to admit, I do not know what's best for me, but I know the one who does. I don't know what's best for me, but I know the one who does. And as John Piper puts it, the alternative to pride is a wonderful, peaceful contentment of soul in God. Which brings us to verse 2. What does it mean to live in contentment? Living in contentment, a calm and quiet soul. And just like heart, this word soul needs some digging into to understand really what is it that David is saying. Soul, like heart, is found in the Shema. Now we might have an idea of a soul being this like spiritual dimension, this, this, this ethereal otherness. It's maybe in a, in a classical Greek sense, our soul is the, the immortal essence that's trapped within these mortal coils and is released upon death. This is not the biblical idea of soul, though. The Hebrew word is nefesh. And the most literal translation of this word is throat. But nefesh doesn't only mean throat. Since your whole life and your whole body depends on what goes in and comes out of your throat, breath, food, water, nefesh can also and is often used to refer to the whole person. So even though nefesh is most commonly, is almost always in our English Bibles translated as soul, the Hebrew word really refers to the whole human being, the living physical, and spiritual organism. In the Bible, people don't have a nefesh, a soul. Rather, they are a nefesh, a soul. A living, breathing, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, holistic being. So what David is speaking of in verse 2, David is saying, I have calmed and quieted my whole self. There really is a deep and a profound connection between our spiritual selves and our emotional selves and our mental selves and our physical selves. There's a lot of worldviews out there that want to try and separate those things out. Whether you're talking about classical Greek with the higher and lower Platonic ideas or maybe Eastern, Eastern religions like Buddhism or Taoism. 
that say you can separate your spiritual self, you can separate your soul from your physical self and one not impact the other. But the Bible says otherwise. We are made a whole being. And what we do with our physical selves, how we treat our physical selves, what we put in our physical selves, will impact us emotionally, mentally, and even spiritually. And vice versa. Y'all, we live in a world, we are inundated with alerts and noise, beeps and buttons and red alerts and everything everywhere. I I was getting gas this morning on the way into church, and the gas station had a video screen that was playing some loop of commercials and video, and I could not get it to shut up. I pushed every button on there trying to make it stop, but it wouldn't. And I'm just trying to guess, like, ugh, because I was having a nice quiet. It It was quiet. It was Sunday. It was beautiful. And then this thing's just yelling at me. But that's the world we live in. My wife is actually trying very hard to teach me that it's okay to be in the car without the radio on. It's okay to just be quiet. It's okay to look at that as a gift of God has given us some time to just be quiet and be still. As Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Calm and quiet of verse 2 is through and a result of the humility of verse 1. We seek to eliminate that coveting, that living life as a competition with other people, looking down on other people, elevating ourselves, thinking that I am the one that has to have it all figured out. When we put that aside, again, this is a lifelong pursuit for David. David didn't just, aha, eureka moment. Okay, I'm going to do that from now on. David is walking through Psalm 131 as this is the lifelong process that he's living. And especially this idea of holding it all together. I can imagine King David really feeling that pressure. If things are going to work in this kingdom, it's because the king makes it so. If the people are going to be okay, if the people are going to be protected, provided for, it's because the king is making it so. And yes, the king has great responsibility. But he is not the one who can make it all happen. I felt this on a small level recently. Yesterday at my home, there were multiple things that all kind of popped up at once that I couldn't fix. My wife's car actually has, has an issue with, with something with the, the ABS speed sensors or something that I can't quite figure out. And I spent yesterday afternoon trying to do that to no avail. My dryer quit working. And I have fixed it too many times to want to open it back up and try in there again. And also the radio on my truck decided it's not going to work anymore. And so all those things kind of come together. Like, I've got to fix it. I've got to make it right. This is my job. Not that I don't try. But what God was teaching me as I was finishing this sermon was, no, you don't. No, you don't. And perhaps bigger, my oldest daughter Evelyn and I did a college visit on Friday. And the reality of paying for three kids' education kind of hit me like a ton of bricks all at once. Like This is right here, right now. We're months away from this kind of kicking off, and we're going to have three in college, very likely. To which I think, I've got to figure this out. I've got to make this happen. To which God replies, no, you don't. You don't have to figure everything out. You don't have to be the one that makes it all happen. Now, let's be clear. God is not promising 
that I'm going to figure out the car fix, that my driver's going to be fixed, and that my kids are all going to get to go to their first choice college, no matter how much it costs. God isn't promising that. God isn't promising any particular material blessing. What God is promising is himself. God is promising himself. And that's the image of the second half of verse 2. This idea of a weaned child, calmed and quiet at soul, like a weaned child is with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. A nursing baby wants their mama for a variety of reasons, right? But one of the big reasons a nursing baby wants their mama is because they're hungry and that's where food comes from. And they will be full from their mama. One of the best things in the life, one of the best things in the world is a milk-drunk baby. They have gorged themselves full, milk coming down their face, and they just kind of pass out in that joy. It's like Thanksgiving, three or four, ten times a day. But weaning, as you go from nursing to food, well, that process is different. And for some babies, that's not so big a deal. For some, that's a rough time for everybody involved. No, you don't get mama's milk anymore, and you get uh, peas and bananas and, and puffs, whatever those are. And that can be a rough process. But at the end of it, once the baby is weaned, they no longer come looking for, for nourishment directly from mama. The weaned child now wants their mama still, but for mama's sake. They want to be with their mom because they love their mom. They want to be with their mom because they feel safe and secure and cared for with their mom. Do we look to the Lord for what he can give us or for him? Do we want the king of kings for his stuff or do we want the king for his own sake? This is the true meaning of the text that Blair read for us earlier. The often misapplied and misunderstood Philippians 4 Verse 11 through 13, I'll read it again. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul recognized, I have Jesus. That is enough. If I have Jesus, I am content. For his own sake. And everything else is bonus. But I am content with Jesus and nothing. I am content with Jesus and some. I am content with Jesus and everything else you can imagine in this world. Because all the rest of it doesn't really matter all that much. Living in contentment is living knowing that if I have God, I have enough. And if I don't have God, all the money, all the possessions, all the blessings in the world cannot make up for it. Corey Ten Boom said, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. A calm and quiet soul is not something we can produce in ourselves. You can't meditate or stretch or quiet retreat yourself your way to that place. You cannot make it happen. It is the result 
of lifting our hearts to the Lord, of lifting our eyes to the Lord, of walking in the Lord on a regular, consistent basis. Recognizing there is nothing in this world that can satisfy me, but only God himself. Again, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has this brilliant quote, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Or as Jeremiah Burroughs puts it, in his classic work, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. To be content as a result of some external thing is like warming a man's clothes by a fire. But to be content through inward disposition of the soul is like the warmth that a man's clothes have from the natural heat of his body. A man who is healthy in body puts on his clothes, and perhaps at first on a cold morning they feel cold, but after he's had them on for a little while they are warm. Now how do they get warm? They were not near a fire, No, this came from the natural heat of his body. Now when a sickly man, the natural heat of whose body is deteriorated, puts on his clothes, they do not get hot for a long time. He must warm them by the fire, and even then they will be cold again soon. Contentment. Living in contentment is rooted in and leads to, verse 3, our third point, living in hope. Put your hope in the Lord now and forevermore, as the psalm says. First of all, put your hope in the Lord. This is where Psalm 130, verse 7 from last week, where the psalmist wrote, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Here David invites others to come and share in this same restful peace that he has experienced within his own soul. And then he stresses that this hope is both now, currently, and forevermore. We've already seen this in the Psalms of Ascent, in our Songs for the Road. Psalm 121, verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And then from Psalm 125. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. This now that David speaks of tells you that you can trust in God for all of your present needs. Knowing that he knows better than you what you truly need. And the forevermore tells you that you can trust in the Lord for all of your future needs. For your temporal future needs and more importantly even for your eternal future needs. David began this psalm by addressing himself to God, O Lord, but now, as is a common pattern in so many of these psalms, he's addressing the people. O Israel, when you stop looking at yourself, when you stop inward belly button gazing, and you start looking to the Lord instead, then you will begin to look around and to see how you can help and how you can encourage and how you can lift up others. I love how Samuel Cox, this 19th century minister and theologian, uh, he wrote uh, a study of the Psalms of Ascent. And he says this about this psalm. We do too commonly busy ourselves with things too great and wonderful for us. And hence it is that we are so restless and perturbed. There is no peace but in the humility which leans on God, which trusts in Him, which confesses weakness and ignorance and guilt which is not ashamed to say, I do not know, I cannot tell, which rejoices not in the faults and the defects of others, but rejoices in whatever is true in them and good 
and kind. Only as we recover the spirit of a little child, of a weaned child, and rest simply low and rest in simple, lowly faith in God, shall we enter into the peace which passes all understanding. We live in a sure hope because that hope is not based in ourselves. It is based in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We can be content because in Christ we have everything. And we are not proud, but we are humble because Christ lived the life and died the death and rose victorious over the death, over the death, over death and grave and sin, putting death in his grave to accomplish what we could not. Jesus did what we couldn't do. We are victorious over sin and death, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And it's because of Jesus Christ, because of His finished work on the cross, His being that propitiation for our sin, paying the price we could not pay, earning the righteousness we could not earn, that we are able to lift our hearts, lift our eyes to the Lord, and walk with Him. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father. Lord, this short psalm has so much in it. We could study and meditate it, as Spurgeon said, for so long and not get to the heart of it and not learn it as we ought. Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would be doing that work in us this morning. Lord, that You would be pouring this psalm, pouring the truths of this psalm into our heart, into our soul, into our whole selves that we would learn humility, contentment, and hope. That we would see this humility, contentment, and hope are only found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's because we are in Him that we have these things. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior, and for His sake. Amen.